Today, we are kind of finishing our three-week quick series through uh, the early books of Exodus, the story of Exodus. Uh, And to start, um, again, as summer is racing by, it seems like forever ago that the Olympics were just here, right? You remember those? Uh, They were kind of all-consuming there for a couple weeks, and then they just disappeared. But um, you remember opening ceremonies, right? Of course, the big the big buildup towards London Olympics is how in the world is London going to match what happened in Beijing? Remember that? Just incredible shock and awe from, <laughs> from the, the Chinese there in Beijing. An amazing production. How is London going to pull that off? So they had theirs. Did you see opening ceremonies? Uh, did you see the rerun of it or anything? Um, different than four years ago, right? Uh, did you like it, though? I, I have to admit, I kind of did. Uh, there were moments that were a little, Becky came, came in a little bit late and missed some of the context for it, and she just went, huh? So there were, there were those moments, uh, but I, I kind of appreciated the story he was telling. Remember, um, let's see the first couple of pictures. Remember, it starts in the, the old pastoral uh, England, and you had Shakespeare uh, sort of sharing some sonnets, or actually, I think it was a quote from one of the plays, with people. You have all that. And then, uh, next slide, um, just the peaceful pastoral kind of area of all of Great Britain, the islands. Um, and then, remember the transition that happened? The music, uh, they brought in that drum band, and it began to play. And what comes next in the history? The Industrial Revolution. Remember that? So those smokestacks start coming out. Uh, there are the guys. Uh, next, next slide. There were the... Um, smokestacks coming out. And then uh, the next one, I think, yeah, the, remember the men, the industrialists, the, the titans of industry who had the money and they were bringing it out and, and all that stuff was happening. Next one. And then you also had all the workers who were making this happen. Remember that transformation from the green pastures into the, the height of industry and everything? In our story of, and you can finish that. There's probably one more, right? Yes. Remember that slide too. In our story of Exodus, I really think that in a way, Danny Boyle, the guy that created that whole opening ceremony and told about the history of England in this very artistic and dramatic way, really captured what is also happening as we move from Genesis to Exodus, right? So Genesis, you have the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. These are, these are nomadic people. Uh, shepherds at times, yes, but mostly the, the kind that just travel all over, not to big urban centers necessarily, but across places. At least the pictures we have is them kind of out wandering with their tents in the middle of nowhere. The story of Joseph then begins to move us from the nomadic lifestyle of these early uh, Hebrew people into the urban area of the empire of Egypt, the greatest empire on earth of the day, right? And so you have this story um, transitioning into this time where Joseph brings his family into Egypt and suddenly, as we begin the book of Exodus, we're, we're uh, confronted with stories not so much of shepherds in the wilderness except when Moses gets away, but more stories of building projects and and the rise of this huge empire under the emperor Pharaoh. And in its way, it's a reminder that throughout history, this is sort of what happens, right? When these great things, these great moments like the Industrial Revolution change the world, it also happens, and, and, and things like this are built on the backs of 
somebody, right? So Danny Boyle tells a story, and he has both these guys who are raising up these incredible things, and he also has all those workers, remember them, that are uh, mining or working with the gold or whatever the metal is, and, and the women and children who worked in the factories to build all of these things, right? This is the, the two sides of history, we might think of our own, our own country, the Transcontinental Railroad, one of the greatest things that transformed our country, right? Also built on the backs of the Chinese immigrants who came at the time. Or, of course, in even uh, less favorable history of our country, the wealth of the southern plantations and the northern textile factories and everything that brought so much wealth to the country, built, of course, on the backs of slaves brought from another land. And then you go all the way back in history and you realize this is happening back then too. Here's Pharaoh building up the empire of Egypt with his amazing buildings and projects and it's being built, says the story of Exodus, at least in part on the backs of these Hebrew people. Right? Remember the story. As we've gone the last couple of weeks, God, we've been told, has heard the cry of these people groaning under their heavy labor And so he's called Moses, this guy we heard a lot about last week. He's called Moses to be the leader who is going to go speak to Pharaoh face to face on God's behalf and tell him to let these people go free. God has heard the cry of these slaves. It's taken, as you recall from last week, some serious convincing to get Moses to agree to do this. It's a bold task. Moses doesn't really delight in being a part of. But finally, God convinces Moses and his brother Aaron to be his spokesperson to the Pharaoh of the empire of Egypt, the largest empire in the world at that time. We pick up our story in Exodus chapter 5, and here's how the story is told. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. So afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. Now, Moses is finally ready for this moment, ready as he's ever going to be. And they said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, and anytime your Bible says Lord with capital L-O-R-D, it's a substitution for Yahweh, the holy name of God. This is what Yahweh, Israel's God, says. Let my people go so that they can hold a festival for me in the desert. So, Imagine you're Pharaoh, and in come these two people. Maybe Pharaoh recognizes Moses from his childhood. Maybe not. We don't know. But these two men come in and say, hey, let uh, this God, Yahweh, whom he's never heard of, says, let these people go into the desert so they can have a religious festival for a few days. Now, it's not easy, I would imagine, being an emperor. Right? Don't you think? I mean, being an emperor has got to have some, some challenges to it, right? Um, first of all, imagine being Pharaoh. You, you have this vast empire to manage and oversee. Okay, so some of you manage uh, portions of, of a company or something. Imagine managing an entire empire, there's always something could go wrong. For example, just a few years back, there was this seven-year famine that came, a nightmare for the Pharaoh to try and figure out before people revolted, complained, and threw him out of power. 
So you have this vast empire to manage. Second, there's, there's always some group that's unhappy or complaining, right? Can you imagine always getting up in the morning and hearing the news, so-and-so, this group has now complained because they don't have enough water. This group is complaining because uh, they, you haven't visited their region in quite a while. This group is complaining for whatever reason, right? There's always something happens. So today, it happens to be these Hebrew people who have started to grow within the land of Egypt and who have been doing a lot of work for you. And now they want to come in and their representative has come and said, we'd like to drop everything that we're doing for the empire and we'd like to go out into the desert and worship our God for a few days. Pharaoh's probably thinking, this whole freedom of religion thing is highly overrated. So no, yeah, no, this is ridiculous. They're working, there's work to be done. There are projects to be completed. So he's got that going as an emperor, right? Um, third, from birth, you have been raised to believe that you are a semi-god. You are divine in some ways. And, and can you imagine trying to sort of live up to the pressure of being a god, right? I mean, if it wasn't hard enough to try and be like sort of kingly or something, you are actually supposed to be uh, godlike uh, in your power. It's got to be a strange thing probably challenging, although some of you are probably saying, hey, I'd like to give it a shot at least, um, to, be, to be a pharaoh, to be an emperor. So here's this pharaoh managing his kingdom, going about trying to build these great things that he will be remembered by for a long time. So I imagine when Moses and Aaron show up to pharaoh's court asking for this religious holiday for a bunch of the workers from the empire. At first, this was just another administrative headache for Pharaoh that he wanted to get taken care of as quickly as possible. So he responds in the way he often responds with his power as a semi-god, his, his authority as an emperor. He just says in verse 2 of Exodus 5, but Pharaoh said, who is this Yahweh that you're speaking of? whom I'm supposed to obey and let Israel go. I don't know this Yahweh. He's never spoken to me. I've never seen him among the other gods. Uh, in my godlike world, I haven't seen this Yahweh show it before. So I certainly will not let Israel go. Verse 4, the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you making the people slack off from their work? Do the hard work yourselves, verse 5. Pharaoh continued, the land's people are now numerous. You want them to stop their hard work? On the very same day, Pharaoh commanded the people's slaves and masters and supervisors, don't supply the people with straw they need to make their bricks anymore, like you used to do. Let them go out and gather the straw for themselves but still make sure that they produce the same number of bricks as they made before. Don't reduce the number. They are weak and they're lazy and that's why they're crying, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Make the men's work so hard that it's all they can do and then they can't focus on these empty lies and dreams of going free for a bit. As we hear Pharaoh give this speech, we sort of hear the echo of leaders who are authoritarian and a bit out of touch with the people. Yes, yes, Pharaoh, the, these people that you're talking about who do hard labor 
for your building projects 24-7 and who now want just a little religious holiday. Yeah, they're lazy. That's what you call people who work for you 24-7. In a way, doesn't it sound like Pharaoh actually would have fit nicely into our 21st century world as well as his very ancient world? I mean, right? This is, this is a culture that we have around us, right? That if you're not working 24-7, if you're not constantly moving all the time, if you're not always producing something at every moment, if you aren't efficient with your time, if you want to take time off for unproductive things like play or religious stuff, festivals of, of worship, then you're kind of lazy, and, and you're not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps like you ought to do. Make something of your life, right? It's interesting as we begin to hear this story unfold and, and already as we hear Pharaoh saying, you can't let them go worship for a time because that makes them lazy. We already hear hints of something very special God is going to do for the people. God, God is going to make this, this marker of his people something called Sabbath. They would remember it back from creation, right? It's this marker that says, no, my people don't have to work 24-7 in order to prove that they're not lazy. In fact, I want them to stop for a time and just be. Hints already of Sabbath. But of course, in contrast, the Pharaoh we see in this story is everything that God and Sabbath are not. They're sort of the anti-God and Sabbath. And in fact, in that case, they're anti-creation Pharaoh is. He, he's gotten himself on the other side of what God wants to do with his people and with the ones he has created and with his earth. God's desire for, for human flourishing as we've talked about week after week. Pharaoh's on the other side. There's God and, and Sabbath rest and letting people go free and there's Pharaoh who calls them lazy and says, work harder for me. You can't go free. It wasn't always this way for the Pharaohs. It, it doesn't have to be this way for this Pharaoh, right? If we remember two Pharaohs ago, if that's how you count Pharaohs, uh, the, the Egyptian emperor, the Pharaoh, two Pharaohs ago, was the one who worked with a guy named Joseph. Remember Joseph? Joseph shows up, works his way up into the Pharaoh's very office, and ends up saving the Egyptian empire from a famine by providing help. Pharaoh is grateful. He sees what Joseph has done is good. He sees Joseph's family is good and invites them and welcomes them into the protection of the Egyptian lands. He brings Jacob, who is now called Israel, and all those people. That's how these Hebrews got here. That Pharaoh recognized something good about these people, welcomed them with open arms. But Pharaohs, it seems, have short memory, right? Because the next Pharaoh that comes along, Exodus tells us, he knew not Joseph. He didn't remember Joseph and his family and all the good they had done. And that Pharaoh saw the growth and the flourishing and, and the well-being of, of this Israel family and felt threatened by it for whatever reason. The new Pharaoh feels even more so that way and hence the slavery and the work and the burdens. Have you ever wondered why it is that some of us, 
We see people do this, we do it ourselves sometimes. When we see people who are truly flourishing or or truly doing well in life and, and happy, our reaction is not joy for them, but it's some kind of insecurity, or or we feel threatened by them. Have you seen that happen with people? There are those people that you realize are just, and by the way, when when we talk about human flourishing and happiness, I'm not talking about the people who have a big house and the car you've always dreamed of, right? Sometimes when we talk about success and joy in life, you're picturing, yeah, if I could just have, you know, all those things I've always wanted then. No, no, no. When we talk about human flourishing, what we're talking about, of course, is sometimes the very opposite of that. It's those people to, to give the easiest example, someone like Mother Teresa, right? Who did not have the mansion or the cars or anything. And in fact, sometimes wrote in her diaries things that were very, very dark and she struggled. But somehow in her life, there was that deep kind of joy. That's what we mean by flourishing. We mean those people who, no matter their circumstances, you realize that they are going to be okay, the, the people who, no matter what comes their way in life, are able to maintain somehow a sense that life is still good. Life is still full of joy in the most surprising ways. That's what we mean. And, and some of us, when we come across one of those people that is just really secure and confident with who they are, happy about their life, and, and feeling good about life, some of us feel threatened by that for whatever reason. Maybe it's because we look at our own lives and go, I don't have that, and so I wish they didn't have that. Maybe there's something wrong with them. Maybe if we can push them down, it will make me feel a little better. It's something like that. Maybe that's what's going on with these pharaohs on sort of an emperor kind of scale. But whatever it is the reason, this pharaoh has felt threatened by the flourishing of these people of God. He's put them in slavery and he's denied their freedom and now he has found himself on the wrong side of God's wish for goodness for his people, for people's wholeness and their well-being. And so, when he's presented with this plan from Moses and Aaron that's going to do something good for these people, that's going to enhance their wholeness and well-being, his instant reaction is defensive. No, they're just being lazy. Instead, I'll make them work harder. Besides, who is this Yahweh God that you're talking about who is telling me how to run my empire? No. And so, as you know the famous story, thus begins this standoff between God, Yahweh, creator, and God of these people, and Pharaoh, on the other hand. How will God handle this conflict? You know the story about the the things that come next and all the things that are unleashed on the empire of Egypt. And one way to read what comes next is that God comes into this conflict with guns blazing, right? Shock and awe, Old Testament style. God has had enough and he's going to do something about it and Pharaoh better get out of the way and watch out. Pharaoh won't even know what hit him. God even hardens Pharaoh's heart along the way to make sure Pharaoh says no so that he can unleash all this stuff on Pharaoh and it's going to be impressive. 
They're, of course, what we often call the ten plagues. A plague literally means a strike or a blow. This is something deadly serious dealt to the enemy. These things are going to eventually convince Pharaoh to send the Hebrew people out of Egypt. There is some truth to that way of reading this story, but if we simply see that story as God's shock and awe meant to wow Pharaoh and blow him away, we will miss some important pieces of the story. There are three I think we should make sure and notice today. And the first one is actually something that came as a surprise to me, but if you read carefully through the story of these ten things, it is only later on that tenth one, the one that has to do with the killing of the firstborn children, that the word plague is used heavily. Other than that, it's only used a couple times through the first ten. Usually those first nine are referred to by another word. They're called signs and wonders. And that actually is important. They're not so much strikes and blows as signs pointing uh, Pharaoh something along the way, like a road sign that says caution, right? Have you seen those signs? Or, or have you been paddling on a river and you're going around a bend and there's a sign that says heavy rapids ahead or waterfall ahead, caution. This would be a good place to get off the river, Right? Signs and wonders, the first nine are that. In fact, they are pointing to things. For example, just listen to the, couple, the first couple of these. Remember the first one, the famous one where Moses is given the power to go and pull, pour a bowl of water of the Nile River and the whole thing turns to blood, right? All the water sources in all of Egypt turn to blood. Now on the surface, this is incredibly annoying, really disgusting, and quite disturbing. It lasts for a few days. People can survive without their water for a couple days, so it's not causing an absolute crisis across Egypt, but it is quite noticeable. But there's a second layer to it too. What great body of water is going to be symbolically filled with blood of the Egyptians at the end of the story, right? Imagine the Red Sea and, and the poem of Moses will describe the Red Sea has now turned to blood because it is full of the armies of Egypt. This first sign is saying, warning, this is where you're headed right now. This will be a good time to get off the, <laughs> the river. So this is a sign, this first one. The second one, after the blood is turned back into water, and it goes away. The next sign is frogs. They come from everywhere. They fill the houses, the beds, the cooking pots. You've heard the story told before. It is disgusting. I don't like one frog. I cannot imagine not being able to walk without... Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. It's annoying again. It's not killing anybody. It's not striking a blow to the Egyptians, but boy, should it shake them awake, right? And then when Pharaoh says, please ask your God to take these away, they just all die. And the Egyptians take them and pile them. And the Bible says they stink, you can imagine. And this would be a sign as well, pointing to what could happen if something else in the future caused a lot of dead bodies to be piled in the land of Egypt, like the killing of the firstborn or the wiping out of Pharaoh's army with people piled 
on the shore. Warning, get off this river. It's going the wrong way. So first of all, is these first nine ones are not just God wiping out Pharaoh as quickly as he can. They are signs that should tell Pharaoh where you're headed and where you're taking your entire empire is a place that is the very opposite of what is good and wholesome. You're headed for disaster. One of our favorite movies to watch as a family um, because the tradition started with the TV version, I will warn you of that at first, uh, of the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It's a Thanksgiving tradition in our house. There is a scene in that movie um, where because of a little uh, car accident falling asleep at the wheel, the two heroes, John Candy and Steve Martin, end up driving down um, the interstate uh, going the wrong way in the middle of the night. And on the other side, across the, the gap in the interstate, they're going parallel to another couple who looks over and is like, what are these guys doing? They're going to kill somebody. And they start yelling out the window, you're going the wrong way. And Steve Martin and John Candy are thinking, you know, like, we can't hear you. What, what? You're going the wrong way. And they're thinking, what? And he leans over and says to his partner, how do they know where we're going? Yeah, they're, they're crazy. They must have been drinking too much. They're like, thank you, thank you. You're going the wrong way. You're going to kill someone. Thank you. Until, of course, the two sets of semi-tractor lights are flashing in front of them, and they realize, ah, <laughs> we're going the wrong way. They survive, but it's a, a moment of humor. But that line has actually stuck in my head for a very long time. People screaming, you're going the wrong way, and those who are going the wrong way thinking, what do they know? I'm fine. The first nine, signs. You're going the wrong way. Get off this river. It's going to go badly. Number two, here's another thing. Hardness of heart is a big theme. Over and over we hear that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And other times we hear God saying, uh, the, the Bible saying that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It means Pharaoh's heart was stubborn. And sometimes we wrestle with this because we're thinking, wow, in this story, God is hardening Pharaoh's heart and, and he doesn't even have a choice in what he's going to do. What's interesting is that even hardness of heart and stubbornness that Pharaoh is experiencing and others, it's not an all or nothing condition. It's, it's not a done deal. Here's what I mean. Six times Pharaoh is said to have hardened his own heart. And I would imagine that this is what someone has to do if they're in Pharaoh's place. They're, they're enslaving all these people. They're saying no to letting them go free. Everything's going wrong. They want to keep them in bondage. In order to ignore this invitation from God to let them go free, you have to kind of harden your heart, right? To become a little calloused, not so sensitive to what people may be crying out for. But a hard heart, this is important, is not a lost cause. For example, in chapter 10, verse 1, we read that God not only hardened Pharaoh's heart, but he hardened the hearts of Pharaoh's officials. So all these people have hardened hearts. But later, in only a few verses later, in verse 7, these officials have seen exactly where Pharaoh is taking them. They've seen where the path is going, and the officials go back and beg Pharaoh, please don't take us down this path. 
we're going towards destruction. So apparently, a hardened heart can have a moment of recognition and become a not hardened heart. Pharaoh's heart, time after time, however, changes his mind. Remember this story? This is the amazing thing about the story. Is over and over, Pharaoh says, no, you can't go. A plague comes, and Pharaoh says, please, get out of here. And then once the plagues are gone, once the signs are gone, the disasters are gone, Pharaoh says, actually, it would be nice to have you still working here. So stay, don't go. And he changes his mind. It's a classic case of, of, of one moment recognizing what God wants to do for you and through you for people, and then the next moment deciding, no, I think I like the way I was headed better. God's way, it's too hard, it's too, too difficult, and so I'll go my way. One author calls it the dance of denial and acceptance. Pharaoh is doing this throughout this whole story. One moment denying that God is doing anything good, that God is powerful, denying that he will let the people go. Another moment accepting, okay, God, you've won, you've had your way, just let the people go, and back again to denial. Acceptance, denial, back and forth goes Pharaoh. His hard heart is not a completely hard heart. It's not a done deal until later in the story. So for hard hearts, there is always hope. And finally, these signs are, are progressively getting worse and worse, right? It's like this river that the rapids start easy, but they're getting more and more. People should be aware and alert to where they are headed over the cliff down the waterfall. There are the gnats after the frogs, annoying still. Then there are the flies, which are really, really annoying. And this is the first time it only happens to the Egyptians and not to the Israelites. And then the livestock disease begins to actually affect animals. Then boils touch human beings. Then thunder and hail unleashes the heavens and takes out a huge portion of the crop which people will need to eat later in the year. What was left from that? The locusts come and destroy all of them. All the crops and the hopes for the year for the Egyptians are gone. And finally, number nine, darkness covers the face of Egypt, which sounds a lot like the earth did before God began creation. Remember, there was chaos and darkness covered the face of the deep. And it's a sign telling Pharaoh, this is exactly where you are taking your empire by keeping these people in bondage. It is a state of chaos, much like the world would have been without creation. An undoing of creation, a dark, watery chaos. Pharaoh, where you are going is not a good place to be. It's disaster. Get off the river. But of course, after a while, hardening one's heart over and over and over, it becomes almost impossible to get through. So calloused it can be. And it's possible, just like that river, to reach a point of no return. And by this ninth sign, when darkness covers, like going back before God created light at creation, Pharaoh has reached that point of no return. But I wonder what would have happened before this if Pharaoh had actually said, 
let me go with you, Moses. If he had recognized they were going the wrong way, what if Pharaoh had sort of seen the beauty of allowing these people to go and have freedom, what God was trying to do for them, and said, actually, I'd like to be a part of that. There was a point in the story where that was possible for Pharaoh. But God can't wait forever. I think that's the difference between the story of Moses we talked about last week and the story of Pharaoh this week. Moses was a questioner, a curious one, kind of belligerent at times. God showed incredible patience with Moses. Why not let Pharaoh sort of change his mind a million times and keep working with Pharaoh? The difference is that with Moses, what was at stake was God was looking for a leader. With Pharaoh, what was at stake was an entire systematic oppression of a whole people who were crying out in agony. And in a case like that, God can't wait forever. God has an urgency when there are people crying out for justice and for freedom, and God will not wait for Pharaoh to go back and forth, back and forth. And so finally God has said, enough, Pharaoh. Your heart is hardened. Let your choice be made, and we are going over the edge of this waterfall. Pharaoh has been driving this boat. God has shot uh, warning shots over the bow, and now it's too late. So that final that ultimate plague that God sends is the death of every firstborn in Egypt. The very hope of their future gone before their eyes. And instead, the people who have been slaves go free. As they are camped near the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind one last disastrous time again he says i've made a mistake we got to go get him you know the story god opens the sea this watery chaos of the sea god pushes it back lets the people walk through and as pharaoh and his army chase over the edge of the waterfall that watery chaos that they've been driving towards the whole time closes over them and it's their end On the other side of the sea is Moses and all the people who have been slaves for so long. And they, as you can imagine, as you can feel in their place, are dancing and singing for joy. The Lord is my strength and my might, Exodus 15. He has become my salvation. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea to be swallowed in chaos and Miriam and the women also dance and sing sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously it's a poignant picture that this story of Exodus paints Pharaoh and his whole army swallowed up in a watery chaos of anti-creation going back before God made all that is so good the natural end of the road they had been driving towards but on the distant shore there's a people dancing for joy and singing songs of praise for the first time in their lives they are free 
free from that never-ending hard labor, free from being reduced to nothing more than makers of bricks for the empire, free to find joy and meaning in their lives, free to find healing and wholeness, free to be what God has always dreamed for them to be, free because God would not rest while they were still in bondage. That picture between celebrating and dancing for joy of freedom on the shore and the watery chaos that enveloped the armies of Pharaoh is the kind of choice God holds out clearly through the book of Exodus and throughout the rest of the five opening books of the Bible. By the, nearing the end of Moses' life, as the people have wandered now through the desert, they are waiting to finally enter this promised land that God has told them they would make it to. They are almost home. Moses stands before them and says one of these beautiful lines that captures this story and much of what the Bible is talking about. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, Moses stands before the people and he tells them, after a long life in which he's seen a lot of things, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. So now choose and choose life so that you and your descendants will live. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. So choose life, says Moses. We have before us the the freedom and joy of people dancing on the seashore, free for the first time in their lives from bondage and slavery and oppression. And we have the watery chaos of those who would not let them go free. And Moses says, choose life. Choose freedom. Choose joy. Choose liberty so that you may live. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have come, he says in another place, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. It's a decision that is clearly laid out for us. It's not always an easy decision, these kinds of choices for life, for joy, for goodness. They're they're not always even crystal clear and they take courage and risk to do. They require saying no sometimes to the fun of a big empire. I don't know. Few of us, of course, are rulers of empires, but every day we're faced with myriad decisions that can either lead towards the shores of redemption, freedom, goodness for people, or to a watery chaos that is what happens when there is oppression and tyranny. We can either choose things that promote human flourishing and happiness and joy or choose things that chip away at the value of human beings and others and ourselves created in God's image. And the stern reminder in this story is that the more we harden our hearts against those things that are good and beautiful, the harder it is to change down the road. So there's an urgency to how we choose. There's an urgency to how we live. But the beautiful encouragement of this story 
is that God is continually holding out that invitation to us to choose life, to choose the way of freedom and redemption, to choose the way of rest from our burdens and and healing and wholeness and joy. It's not out of your control. It's not completely spiraled beyond your grasp. You can affect your life. You can affect your corner of the world. You can choose. So choose life. Choose life. Choose life.